things out there? Yes. <laughs> I love football. I mean, I really love football. I grew up watching the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys with my dad. Anybody remember those days? Roger Staubach, Lynn Swan, Mean Joe Green, Terry Bradshaw. You with me? I see some nodding heads. <laughs> now that we live here in the Bay Area, we, we root for the 49ers. 49er fans out there? And since our college days, <laughs> my husband and I have been into college football. And uh, we follow our alma mater, Georgia Tech, really closely. And now that our son is going to San Diego State University, we've adopted the Aztecs <laughs> as our new favorite college team. But the most football, the most I've enjoyed football ever, the most joy I've ever had watching football is watching my oldest son, Jack, play uh, high school football. Last year, fall of 2015, was Jack's senior year and his final football season. And knowing that it was his final season just made every game that much more special. And the build-up to a game was so much fun. It was just, you know, so much anticipation heading toward that game time. The boys worked really hard practicing all week. Us moms were working behind the scenes, preparing the team breakfast, preparing the team dinner for the night before. We'd set up the locker room, and then we'd pray on the 50-yard line. And I mean, just... <laughs> so on game day, the build-up started early in the morning with the team breakfast, and the junior varsity would play first. And um, while the junior varsity played, the, mo the varsity moms would work the concessions and stuff, and then when the, JV game was t when the JV game was over, it was time to hit the stands. And the boys' pump-up music would start blaring <laughs> over the loudspeakers. The team would burst through the tunnel that was dramatically billowing with smoke. Cheerleaders on either side shaking their pom-poms. The, they rushed to the center of the field, and they did their unintelligible chant. You know, the one that goes... <laughs> I mean, we don't know what they said all those four years, but it got us all pumped up. They, they get in these neat lines with their loud music, and they do their warm-ups, and then my favorite part, the national anthem of any sporting event. I just want to get there by the national anthem. National anthem plays, and the home of the brave. Play ball! Right? So that's where I feel like we're starting with in Exodus 5 today with Moses and Aaron. It's game day. Showdown with Pharaoh. Moses' confidence, I have to think, would have been really high going into this meeting, right? He had hashed out all his concerns with God. God had reassured Moses, equipping him with some tangible tools to prove that he was speaking on God's authority. Then God anointed his brother Aaron to be a spokesperson. And Aaron would have been confident too because God had given Aaron instructions to go meet with Moses where Moses gave him the game plan. And not only that, but the Israelites were behind them just as God had told Moses they would be. Verses 29, this is in the previous chapter. 
429 through 31 says, Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. Yes! And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Game on. They are ready. This is going to be good. Or not. (laughs) So Moses approached Pharaoh, and the first recorded words out of their mouth are a declaration. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a lot of presumption, isn't there, behind this declaration? Because as I mentioned last week, when kings sent messengers to the people, to people, to get them to do their bidding, the messengers would say, thus saith king so-and-so. And with that, the messenger carried the authority of the king with him. And presumably, the recipient of the message was a subject of the king and accepted the instructions as directly from the king. But what happened if the recipient was not a subject of the king? Didn't even know the king let alone recognize the authority of the king. As a parent, I've given instructions through a messenger, counting on the fact that if the messenger invokes my name, the recipient will comply. For example, if I tell my daughter, Annabella, go tell, Ma- go tell Paul that mommy said to take out the garbage. I'm assuming that if Annabella invokes my name, thus saith mommy, that Paul will respect my authority and take out the garbage. But what if I tell Canova's daughter, Olivia, there's Kate back there. Hey, Kate, I did ask her permission to use her daughter's name, by the way. If I tell Kate's daughter, Olivia, to go tell your sister that I said to take out the garbage. Well, I teach Olivia in Sunday school, and we we have a good relationship. She respects me and knows that I value her. So Olivia might do as I ask because she trusts me, right? But invoking my name with her sister may not have the same effect, will it? Because her sister has no idea who I am. So I'm pretty sure that her sister would be like, who is teacher Daniela? And who cares what she says? So right off the bat, Aaron and Moses have a problem, right? Because while they were confident in who Yahweh was, Pharaoh was like, who? Exodus 5.2 says that Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, Yahweh, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Remember last week when we learned that God revealed his name Yahweh to mankind, to Moses, for the first time in history. So this is certainly the first time Pharaoh's ever heard it. And remember also that Yahweh is a verb. So it would have sounded really weird to Pharaoh as well. Thus, thus says am, or is, or something like that. Remember, Pharaoh thinks he is a god, and that there are a bunch of gods that the Egyptians worship. 
So why would he heed the instructions of some God with a weird name that he's never heard of? So Moses tries again. He said in verse 3, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. In other words, our God has actually come and spoken to us. We have a relationship with him. And then he ends the request with, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. So he, he doubles down on the authority of God and the fact that in contrast to Egyptian gods, he has communicated, the God has communicated with them and ends with a threat. According to theologian Peter Enns, when he says us, he's not referring to just us, the Israelites. The way that that's in the Hebrew language it is, is he's, he's include, it's a collective us, meaning including you, Pharaoh. So God was kind of foretelling was what was going to happen, was it what was about to happen with Pharaoh. Because the word pestilence, which is the NRSV word, I believe, in the original Hebrew language means plague. And if we know the story of what's happening next, we know what's about to come. Pharaoh was not only dismissive of, of Aaron and Moses and this God they represent, but he seemed to take pride in the number of Israelite slaves they had. Remember the first Pharaoh when Moses was born? He was totally obsessed with keeping the numbers of the Israelites in check. This Pharaoh, on the other hand, it seemed to have the attitude, the more Israelites, the more slaves, the better for me. Verse 5 said, Pharaoh continued, Now the Israelites are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want to stop them working. Pharaoh had no fear, did he? See, in his mind, there was no conflict. He owned the Israelites. They were his property, right? They belonged to him, and he was going to show Moses who the boss of the Israelites were by forcing them to find their own straw and yet keep the same quota for their bricks. And when the Hebrew foreman approached Pharaoh, Pharaoh, he didn't back down and basically just told them they were lazy. It kind of reminded me of a, a bully on a playground pushing a kid over and then standing there at the, staring at the other kids going, so what you going to do about it? Those other kids standing around feel powerless to do anything, don't they? Not to mention, I mean, well, do you think Moses might have felt standing there hum somewhat humiliated and powerless? To make matters worse, after the Israelite foreman went to see Pharaoh, they turned all their frustration and anger on Moses and blamed him for their plight. I use the message Bible here because the emotions written in modern language feel more relatable. It says in verse 20, May God see what you've done and judge you. You've made a stink before Pharaoh and his servants. You've put a weapon in his hand that's going to kill us. Poor Moses. How do you think Moses felt seeing the repercussions, what the repercussions were of his meeting with Pharaoh? Did he feel responsible for their suffering? Was he angry at Pharaoh? 
Was he angry at God? Was his confidence in dealing with Pharaoh just destroyed? He lamented to God in verse 22, My master, why are you treating this people so badly, and why did you ever send me? From the moment I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, things have only gotten worse for the people. And rescue? Does this look like rescue to you? This is not how things were supposed to go, were they? Moses was having a really rough time, wasn't he? And I felt so sorry for Moses when I read this because he was doing what God had asked him to do. And it was rough. Which begs the question, if we are doing the will of God, should it be smooth sailing? And if it's not, what does that mean? Have you ever felt like you were doing the will of God or doing what God was asking you to do, yet it wasn't smooth sailing? Did it make you doubt what God had called you to do? Did it affect your relationship with God or your view of God? I'm going to share with you a time when I was in God's will, but it wasn't smooth sailing. And it has to do with, yes, my fourth baby, Annabella. I hope you'll bear with me for part three of this story and see if you can relate Moses' story to mine and maybe to your own story. I shared with you about my plan of never having any more children a couple weeks ago after my third child was born because of the severe postpartum depression that I had suffered. But, But obviously God had other plans. And last week... I told you about my eight-month dialogue with God that was prompted by my husband, uh, which led me to decide to let go uh, of my control over my fertility and let God have his way with that. And here's what happened. Within a few months, I was pregnant, and more than any other of my other pregnancies before, I was just so in awe of this baby who had, if I had had my way, not even existed. I was just over the moon, so happy and marveling at the miracle of it all. And I had an early ultrasound around eight weeks, and I saw the heartbeat, the little arms and legs, and I was just, I was just overjoyed. And I was just walking around with that little ultrasound picture, just showing everyone. But at 12 weeks, when I went in for the ultrasound, the baby had no heartbeat. It was a miscarriage. I was confused. God, why did you put me through all that and then allow me to have a miscarriage? I just didn't understand. It didn't make sense. It didn't really shake my faith, and I believed that God was in control, but I doubted myself. I mean, surely, God, after all that time with you, I didn't misunderstand what you had asked me to do. I mean, I understood that that it was not so much about me having another baby as it was surrendering, giving up control over something I had such a tight hold on, letting go and letting God, as the saying goes. 
But while the miscarriage was confusing and, and very sad for me, that still wasn't the end of it. There was still to be another major bump in the road. A few months later, I got pregnant again. But this time I hesitated, getting a little too excited until I crossed the old 12-week mark. I crossed the mark, and other than being exceptionally tired because I was 39 and not exactly in my most prime of my youth, um, I was happy, really happy, until the bottom fell out. I was humming along in my pregnancy, but when I was about 30 to 35 weeks pregnant, my body's metabolism shot up, and my body began to over-metabolize uh, my depression medication. In effect, it was like going off of it cold turkey. And if you know anything about those kind of medications, you don't go off of them cold turkey. Well, I didn't know this, and I definitely didn't see it coming. And I had a, a complete mental meltdown fighting suicidal thoughts to protect the life of this baby. <clears throat> I didn't believe that God couldn't help me. I believed that I had failed God, and he wasn't going to help me. My prayers went something like this. God, I thought this is what you wanted from me, but I just can't do it. I'm not capable. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's too hard. Why did you give this to me to do? I can't do it. And there was just this pitifully small cry for help. I know you can help me if you want me to, if you want to. But I just didn't think you would. The next morning after I had a, in a turning point moment, my husband called my doctor and had me at the doctor's office first thing, saying, she ain't right. You got to do something. <laughs> I'm from the South. We talk like that sometimes. Immediately, my doctor sent me over to Emory, Women's, Emory University Women's Mental Health uh, Center in Atlanta to be under the care of a Dr. Jeffrey Newport. Emory, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is a world renowned teaching and research clinic and hospital. And Dr. Newport super specialized in the psychiatric care of women who are pregnant to one year postpartum. That's all he did. That's all he does. I actually looked him up, seeing if he was still doing the same thing. Arriving at Dr. Newport's office, I was hopeful, but I was also scared. I wanted to talk to Dr. Newport about all I had been through with God. But being clearly mentally ill, I, you can laugh. <laughs> it's true. It's official. I've been diagnosed. <laughs> I was worried that if I talked about God in a familiar way, like I knew God, that I thought if he's not a believer, he might think I'm delusional or hallucinating or something. So I was, I was nervous to talk to him about this. And he asked what my stress triggers were at the time, and I told him that I was organizing a day camp at my church called Vacation Bible School, VBS. He said, oh, really? What curriculum are you using? <laughs> uh, gospel white? 
proceeded to tell me about his church's VBS. Not only that, I learned he has a Master's of Divinity degree. He's like super guru and everything, apparently. <laughs> so God delivered me. He delivered me into the care of a super guru doctor who is a follower of Jesus. Is that crazy? The outcome of Dr. Newport's treatment is nothing short of a miracle. Thanks to his expertise, when Annabella was born, it was an experience like none I had ever had with my previous three children because their births came with some sort of a lot of stress, some postpartum blues, that kind of thing. But what I experienced with Annabella's birth was pure, unfettered joy and happiness. It was a happiness and a joy like I had never experienced before. Oh, sure. I was tired. I had my sleepless nights and all that. But I was so happy. I didn't care. In fact, our whole family was in awe of this miracle. <laughs> so here we are with Moses. He's so despondent. Like me, he and the Israelites couldn't see their deliverance, could they? Why doesn't God, when we follow his will, make it a little easier? He certainly has the ability, right? But as the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So every circumstance is different, and his reasons are higher than our little finite brains can process. But the pattern that came to me in this story, in the story of the Israelites, is this. If everything had been smooth sailing, would I, or for the Israelites for that matter, have fully appreciated God's almighty power in it? Did he allow us to take a rocky path to get to a more desperate place so that when he brought us out of it, the bringing out part was so unique and awesome that the only thing we can see is his almighty power. You know, God didn't spell it out to Moses how he was going to show his almighty power in delivering the Israelites. But he certainly gave them hints. For example, in Exodus 4, 3, he said, The king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it. And then in Exodus 4, 21 through 23, he says, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, Let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, and now I will kill your firstborn son. But Moses didn't cling to those 
those hints, those, the, the, the ways that God told him he would show his almighty hand. Moses got mired into his circumstances, didn't he? Arguably, even more important than God telling Moses how he was going to show his almighty power was that Moses had a fundamental understanding that he and the Israelites belonged to God, not to Pharaoh. This had been reinforced in the dialogue that Moses had back in Exodus 3, when he, in its, verse 7, he called them my people. And in verse 10, he referred to them as my people, the children of Israel. And then again in 4.22, he said, Israel is my firstborn son, which had weighty meaning in a patriarchal society. And Moses knew that God's will for mankind was to come through the Israelites because of the Abrahamic covenants. Shouldn't that have been enough to give Moses peace? So in facing difficult circumstances while we're in God's will, what can we as followers of Jesus Christ cling to when we find ourselves in rocky waters in the midst of God's will? Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We need to know that we are children of God, that we belong to Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. We need to know that our Heavenly Father has our best interests at heart, that he has a plan. And 1 Peter 4, 12 and 19 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So then though, then he continues on in verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to the, their faithful creator and continue to do good. We should expect, we need to know that we are going to experience trials in his will and yet we should continue persevere and we need to know that there is joy in trials and that it brings us closer to Jesus and I'm not talking about happiness I'm not talking about earthly happiness I'm talking about as John Piper put it a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world good feeling in the soul from the Holy Spirit. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, 
lacking in nothing. So think about these things and challenge yourself with these questions. When have you felt like you were doing the right thing or felt like you were in God's will, but it wasn't smooth sailing? And how can you better prepare your heart and mind so that you can have peace and joy even when things are difficult? I'd like to finish today with all of us praying uh, this song that I introduced to you um, last week. We're going to sing a little bit of it. So you guys don't have to stand, but uh, enjoy this with me and pray it with me.